as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hello, this is Tim Kittle, President of Speech Pathology Australia, and I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to catching up with today's guest, who's Dr. Lynn Williams, President of the American Speech Language Hearing Association. Welcome at long last to the Speak Up podcast, Lynn. Thank you, Tim. I am so happy to be with you. You know, you and I have talked about this for over a year, so I'm (laughs) glad we got it to happen. (laughs) It's been crazy, hasn't it? Because this year... Things have gotten in the way for just about everybody, haven't they? And I suppose that's the reason why I really wanted to catch up with you today, to sort of talk about the year and and all of those themes that we've sort of learnt together. But for the very, very few people who listen to this podcast who don't know you already, Lynn has a really strong interest in the impact of communication disorders and you advocate for the value of our profession in improving population health. You're absolutely no stranger to any speech pathologist who's been working in paediatric speech development in Australia. Really excitingly, the second edition of your book, which is called Interventions for Speech Sound Disorders in Children, Communication and Language Intervention, is something that you co-edited with uh, Sharon McLeod, and that was published late last year. Lynn Williams and Sharon McLeod working together. That has got to be a fun room, right? Tell me a little bit about the process. <laughs> it is, it is. Well, you know, I'll go back to the first edition, which actually began during my sabbatical in 2007, which I spent a large part of that time with Sharon McLeod at Charles Sturt University. So it was at that time that we started mapping out the the book and we invited Rebecca McCauley to work with us because in addition to being brilliant she also developed a template for interventions for children with language disorders that we just loved and we wanted to incorporate that template into into our text um so we we made a list of like the top 20 plus interventions, evidence-based interventions for speech sound disorders in children, and then um, invited the authors of those approaches to contribute a chapter to the book. And we asked them to utilize this template um, that was very prescribed, which makes it easy for readers to follow, and then also to compare uh, within and across interventions. So the second edition was an update of those interventions, um, particularly with regard to the research evidence that has come out in the past 10 years. And um, we also tweaked the template a bit and we added some new chapters, particularly with regard to implementation with Fidelity, which I co-authored with Elise Baker, and um, another chapter on clinical decision-making. You've got all these interventions, how do you decide which one 
one to implement with a particular child. How fantastic. It's it's just amazing since I graduated, um, you know, just the explosion in our knowledge of speech sound disorders and to actually be alive at this time in the profession and on top of all of this sort of thing is just so amazing. But I can only imagine the amount of energy that is bouncing around the room when you and Sharon are talking to each other. Yes. <laughs> I can probably hear it through <laughs> the, the whole... The room kind of vibrates. <laughs> <laughs> I would not doubt that at all, Lynn. That's so fantastic. Um Part of the reason why I really wanted to chat with you um, was that I heard you on the See, Hear, Speak podcast, um, which Dr. Tiffany Hogan runs. You did that sort of earlier this year. Um, For those people who are listening who don't subscribe to that, totally recommend that they see it. It is a fantastic, really thought-provoking podcast that's being... um, put out and challenges us us all. I think um, in that podcast, you're really talking about how that paradigm really, really shifted sort of in in 2000. And so if you're interested, listeners, you must go and find that. It's a really, really worthy listen between you and, and Kelly Farkerson. For this particular discussion, though, today, Lynn, I suppose I really want to chat with you about how this year has actually kind of gone. And we'll get to that. But ASHA has a really, really different board system to the one that we have at Speech Pathology Australia. We have listeners to this podcast from all over the world, so but they may not necessarily be knowledgeable about how your board system works and how your term works. I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind describing that for us. Yes. Um, so with our presidential team, it's a three-year term, and each of the years... Uh, you have a different role and you have a different set of responsibilities. And I think that's largely because ASHA is so large and so complex. In fact, I think that ASHA is the third largest association in the United States. And this is including not just professional associations, but also trade associations. So it helps to have a team working on this. Um, And and so as president-elect, uh, I, I was a liaison to the uh, new Committee of Ambassadors, which just started um, this year. And it has a, that committee alone has 104 members. So you have an audiology and speech language pathology representative from each of the states within the United States. And then we have um, an international representative. We have... Um, representative from the U.S. territories, and a NISILA representative, the National Student Speech Language Hearing Association. Um, So that's a big thing. You also uh, serve as a trustee on the American Speech Hearing Foundation, and um, you're you're a member of the Mm -hmm. Committee on Nominations and Elections, which sets up the slate for the next year. And um, and then you also chair the committee on committees, which is a huge responsibility because we have 33 committees, councils and boards. And um, and then as immediate past president, you have different responsibilities. So you chair the committee of nominations and elections. You also serve on the committee of leadership development. And in each of those roles, we interact with members. Um, We also um, uh, affiliate with state associations. So we go and and the outreach to our members. So um, I know that I'm about halfway finished with my presidential year. I'm 
I can see why it would only be one year because <laughs> it really you you're really charged up and um, to have to sustain that level of energy and focus and attention as a volunteer leader when yes. you have a day job would would be just really incredible. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that May in America is Better Speech Language Hearing Month. You've got your conference that happens at the end of the year. It must just be amazing that sort of drop everything and run and devote everything to these activities, Lynn. Well, and, and they allow you to, um, to, to select what things fit within your schedule. Um, so you don't have to say yes to everything. But of course, I want to do as much as I can. It's such an incredible opportunity, a once in a lifetime opportunity. And so I'm, I'm wanting to take advantage of, of every every day of it. And my university supports me. And ASHA also provides the university an institutional stipend to help uh, buy out my time. So all of that helps. Yeah, fantastic. So thank you so much for that, because every time I talk to somebody from Asher and get them to explain just the, the megalithic kind of organization that is Asher, I just get a little bit more of an insight um, behind it. So in the last time that we actually caught up was 2019, when you were president-elect-elect. And I think right. for much of that lunch, there was a lot of laughter, but also me trying to get my head around what president-elect-elect was. And much of the talk that we were talking about was just the excitement um, that both you and I have for, I'd only recently stepped into the role as president. I was about four months in here for SPA. You had your president-elect year. And then um, 2020 happened while you were president-elect. And a lot of the time through 2020, Lynn, I did think for you, think of you because I was sort of thinking, you are now looking at 2021 and things are looking really, really different to when we last sort of caught up. So I, I guess what I'd really like to know from the outset is how's 2021 been panning out for you so far? And, and what's been a real highlight for you? Well... Time management has certainly been <laughs> one major thing. <laughs> but um, beyond that, there have been some really unexpected uh, learnings. And, and one has been teamwork. And I, I knew that having served on the board previously as a vice president. But the teamwork with the staff, the ASHA staff, as well as with um, the volunteers on these um, 33 different committees, councils, and boards, as well as the board of directors. So you're, you're working with these individuals who are incredibly brilliant, devoted, and passionate about serving our members. So everybody's on the same page, and it is, is an experience of teamwork that I haven't had in other settings. So it's really wonderful to be part of that. Everybody's on the same page in serving our members so they can provide the best care for their patients, their clients, and their students. We are very member-centric. Yes, uh, that teamwork sort of theme is something that sort of really occurred to me as well, just how quickly people pull together. Do you think that's part of the culture of speech pathology as a profession? I do. I really do. Um, and, and I'd like to add another thing that that I, I have learned this year so far is the complexity of the issues that the association deals with. 
there are a number of different perspectives that we hear about and from. Um, there's the member perspective, which we have two professions of one discipline, so audiology and speech-language pathology, but also different perspectives with regard to different practice settings, whether you are in the schools or you are in healthcare, long-term care, rehab, acute care, um, you're in private practice, you're in the university setting. Um, there are also differences between early, mid, and later career stages of our members. Um, there are differences in experiences among racial, ethnic groups. Um, so there are all these different stakeholders that come with different perspectives, different needs, different concerns, and and then the complexity of how do we communicate with each other, particularly in this remote environment. And, and I don't know about um, Speech Pathology Australia, but one of the things that has really expanded in the past um, year and a half has been the use of our members sending petitions, and we'll get thousands of signatures from members on a particular issue. Yeah, so it's sort of, it's interesting, isn't it, that, you know, that time that we spent locked down, we really started reflecting on ourselves and really looking at the profession and, and where it is that we kind of want to be, which I think is actually really right. exciting. Um, it, it gave us yes. chance to, to do that sort of thing. And, and what is it that really kind of matters? Um, and to pick up on your... Um, your thoughts about, you know, the nature of, you know, culture and, and all of that sort of thing, you know, during 2020, of course, there was huge discussions about race and, and representation and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, how was that in terms of, you know, how did that change ASHA or is changing? I don't know. It, well, you know, one, one of the things ASHA has really been a pioneer in terms of multicultural issues and we've had an Office of Multicultural Affairs celebrated its 50th anniversary a couple of years ago. So we have been a leader in that area. And even with that, um, there's still so much more to do. And um, so, so the the social unrest, the um, the the racial um, issues that were coming to the forefront, which I think the pandemic helped magnify that as well. Um, that, that added another completely different layer onto the pandemic that we were having to deal with simultaneously. So um, ASHA has really engaged um, a system-wide approach in how we are addressing this. We are looking at every aspect within the association, governance, um, continuing education, membership, recruitment, you name it, all the different units, all the different teams, the policies, the procedures, um, looking at the wording, looking at the practices, um, going through training that is ongoing. Uh, and as a board of directors, we did a similar thing. Uh, as, as a president-elect, one of my roles was to organize the uh, board retreat, which we have in October before you actually come onto the board. 
And, um, and interestingly, I had selected the topic back in January before the pandemic, before uh, the murder of George Floyd and Ahmed Omri uh, of unconscious bias. So it was very timely, very relevant. Um, and, and that was the focus of our retreat. And we have uh, sustained that training, sustained the discussions. We have made revisions to our strategic pathway and looking at how do you infuse um, diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout each of our strategic objectives, that it's not just one separate compartmentalized thing, but that it is encompassed within whether it is noms and data collection or it is um, cultural competence or member recruitment, that it is a part of everything that we do, everything that we say. Um, so it has been transformative. Yes, absolutely. And as you say, it's it's Ash has been doing this for absolutely ages. But I think you know that reflection back that members, speech pathologists and audiologists, want us to be pushing forwards in this cultural revolution. Um, yes. That this is that we are not simply a, a profession that looks at the science of communication, but we actually have a a real um, mandate. To, to actually speak as to what is a good society within, right. still within speech pathology. But, you know, like I'd always sort of battled with, is this our role or is this not our role? And I think I was really surprised by the amount of feedback that SPA got from its response to racism statement and the conversations that were happening and people really wanting to, to sort of, you know, giving us the go ahead to actually have a say, to do yes. these sorts of things. And it sounds like it's exactly the same in Asia. Well, anti-racism is a part of our strategic pathway. So yeah. we have to say something. And, yeah. and, you know, it can be politically charged because we're in a politically charged environment, particularly last year with the presidential election. But when we think about it in terms of human communication, um, that encompasses everything. Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. Communication isn't just pure words between one or another. It comes charged with all of those emotions and, and those thoughts. It comes with diversity, equity and inclusion. Absolutely. Um, it's so fascinating. How fantastic. Okay. So now that we've hit 2021 and vaccinations in America are just going gangbusters, which is fantastic. You know, we're so far behind here in Australia, but hoping to, to catch up at, at some particular stage. There's this real sense of optimism now, and you're possibly one of the most optimistic people I know. What's your sense for 2021 in terms of this optimism and, you know, where we can go next? I, well, I, I do feel very optimistic. I think that with the challenges that we faced in 2020, we learned a great deal. Um, so one of the things is I, I feel like I personally, and I'll talk about the association, but uh, personally, I, I learned that um, this change allowed me to develop and use leadership skills that I would not have had the opportunity to do otherwise. So I've grown in my leadership skills and developed some additional tools for um, helping the board of directors stay connected, feel a sense of community, as well as a sense of accomplishment and what 
we have been able to do. So the, as I mentioned before, the pandemic is uh, an accelerator um, for change, but it's also a magnifier of the things that needed to change. So we've learned that we can make changes faster than we thought was ever possible. Mm-hmm. We've also learned that change can be good. Um, it, it can be better. It can be more efficient. It can be more effective, like in terms of our service delivery models, in terms of our access to services, in terms of our learning, both for our clients, patients, students, but also in university settings. Um, yeah, I had to learn a totally different way of teaching in, in our fall semester. And I won't go back, you know, that, that, um, high flex method. I, I worked a whole lot harder than I've ever worked, but it was so exhilarating. So it wasn't just exhausting, it was exhilarating. And the students got so much from it too. So I don't see us bouncing back to 2019, but bouncing forward to 2022. Um, and I also believe we'll, we will move with more focus and, um, and even speed to embrace competency-based educational model, which I want to say we've been looking to Speech Pathology Australia and, um, and reading and talking and, uh, and presenting about your Compass model. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, nice. Yes, we've been uh, really looking at professional standards, which we released last year, which is right. a, a really different look at not just what you need to be able to do, but, but what sort of identity you need to have in order to really do this incredibly effectively. It was a really exciting project. And so you're following, um, doing something different, but along the same lines with your, the way that you describe. Yes, yes. And, you know, change takes a while, even though we learned that we can do change faster. Um, but th- th- this pandemic with our students, we, you know, we count clock hours. And when they got pulled out of clinic and they weren't going to be able to graduate, um, that really magnified the problem with that model and, and pushed the need towards we really need to move towards competency-based educational model. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you're right, it changes everything and change can be exciting um, as well. I think it's taught me a little bit about innovation too, that, you know, what is innovation? Like I, I think a couple of years ago, I might've thought that innovation was dangerous because what you're doing is you're experimenting with things and maybe that's not a, a great thing. But innovation doesn't mean not using evidence-based practice. It's using evidence-based practice in a new way, I guess. And that's what I was seeing all over the place, which was so exciting. Yes. And, and finding out that that innovation was working better in some instances. I know in our feeding clinic, they thought, how can we do feeding clinic remotely? And then actually they're saying, we're not going back, you know, because we're, we're in the, the room with the parent and with the child. We're seeing what they have in their environment, their foods. We can interact with them. And the generalization is, is greater. Yeah, it's fantastic. It really has changed absolutely everything. So halfway through the year for you, Lynn, what are you really looking forward to over the next little bit? Well, my uh, focus, I think I mentioned, is on advocacy. And um, one of the, the platforms that I have for that is 
a presidential column in the ASHA Leader, which is our professional magazine. And um, I've, I'm devoting a column on different aspects of advocacy. So I kind of an advocacy 101 and and I started with self-advocacy because I thought if we don't know how to advocate for ourselves, it's it's difficult to advocate for others. And then my second one that will be coming out is on uh, public policy advocacy and and um, how do we do that and, and trying to debunk a lot of myths around that, like, well, I'm not a lobbyist, so, you know, nobody's going to listen to me. But we're exactly the people. We're the ones in the trenches who the... Um, the policymakers want to hear from. And um, and my next column is going to be on effective advocacy and kind of going back to what I was saying, where we're having a lot of uh, our members submitting petitions. And um, and I want to, to, to give voice to that and say, how can we engage with each other in a more meaningful, effective way and um, instead of, you know, just kind of jumping on the bandwagon to sign something, but I really haven't read it in detail. Um, so that's that's one of the things that um, I'm, I feel really strongly about. And so I'm 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 wanting to do this grassroots advocacy, but um, advocating for our members, advocating for our professions, advocating for the people we serve and, you know, my last column is going to be on collaborative advocacy. Uh, we have a very strong focus on interprofessional education and collaborative practice, as I know that you do in Australia as well, which I've also borrowed from a lot of uh, your brilliant people there who are doing this work. And one of the things that I have been involved with recently is a, a narrative review of the health disparities of individuals with communication disabilities. And, you know, they, they um, are hospitalized more frequently. Their hospitalization stays are longer. There's frequent, more frequent readmissions. Um, the outcomes are poorer. And so we need to be advocating for, to be part of healthcare teams, part of educational teams to serve our patients better um, because a lot of people won't pay attention to, I need to communicate differently with this patient. You know, so we need to be training our care providers um, to, to spend the time to learn how to communicate, to include communication boards, simple communication boards in a supply closet so that when a patient is admitted and it's on their chart that they have a hearing loss or they have a communication disability, that that simple communication board is provided to them and the staff know this and aren't waiting for them to ring a bell and ask for help. Absolutely. And I suppose, and, and that's it, you know, like in this short period of time, we've learned that behavior of society can change quite quickly when they understand yes. the importance, right? So right. I can't go in to a shop at the moment without scanning my phone and letting people know where I am. And, and that happened really fast. And people took that on board really, really quickly. So 
it, it needs that voice. It needs somebody to actually shine a light on. This is not a hard thing to change. And like you just said, change can happen very, very quickly and very efficiently, but it needs the voice of our profession to actually be stepping up and saying what it is that's, that's kind of needed. Wow. How incredible. All right, Lynn, it has been so amazing chatting with you. Um, I'm just sorry that it wasn't sort of in person like we had planned, our evil plans to, you know, catch up at the ASHA convention. But so exciting that that will be happening this year. You've just found out. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. Yes, yeah. we are very excited about that news. Yeah, fantastic. Look, thank you so much for your time. Um, as always, I've learned so much from you just in this short space of time. Take care. Thank you so much, Jen. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.